Hey besties, and welcome back to another episode of the Spooky Rip Jean Mom. Um, it's currently 9.36 p.m. on September 7th, so it is my 24th birthday. Ah, so excited. Uh, also, it is 9.36 p.m., so my mind is not all the way here. I will probably be stumbling like on my words and everything. I also have the monitor in here to watch Paisley. So if there's like a brief pause, it's because one, I'm either checking it or I've paused the recording so I can go check up on her. Um, but I have not talked to you guys in a week now, I think, or a little over a week. Nothing too much has been going on. I got to catch up with an old friend her, um, and one of my other friends. We went out to eat. One of my friends I see all the time. Um, but we went out to eat at one of our local restaurants here. Um, we haven't really hung out with this friend in over a year. It was so nice to catch up. She's so sweet. Um, and then this weekend I went with my friend's slash my coworkers. I love my coworkers so dearly and all of them are way more than just coworkers to me. They are some of my greatest friends. I love them with my whole heart. Um so I feel weird when I'm like, yeah, like I went out with my coworkers because they truly are some of my like best friends. So my friends and I went out to the um music festival on Saturday night here. We went when we were all like out of work. So it was like 8 p.m. when we went, so vendors were gone. It was really just for us to eat food and listen to some music. Paisley went with us. She absolutely loved it. Um, smiling, loved to dance. It was great. So that was a fun way to kind of celebrate my birthday. And then um, I had today off. Well, I had Sunday off. We didn't do much. I cleaned pretty much the whole day, so I didn't have to worry about cleaning today. And then today was my day off as well, and Paisley and I just hung out with Bailey until he had to go to work, and I got my Starbucks birthday coffee, so you already know I was set to go. Um, and so, it, like I said, it's past 9.30 here, and I'm still in my ripped jeans because I feel like a fraud if I'm not in my ripped jeans when I do this podcast because of the title, like my name. So... I really want to get into comfy clothes, but I feel like I'm doing myself an injustice and that I'm lying to you guys, even though I'm not, you know? Um, before we get this thing started, because that's pretty much all I've had going on, before we get this thing started, I want to do a trigger warning now. We talk a lot about some, like, sexual assaults. We do talk about attempted suicide, and then we also do talk about murder, so if that, if any of those three things are something that you are not wanting to listen to, it is okay to go ahead and exit. Um, also, before we get started, I do have an Instagram. It's the Spooky Rip Jean Mom, and it is mainly for me to post pictures of what, you know, the murderers look like, certain areas that they were in that were mentioned a lot, people in the stories, um, and that we're in charge of the cases, so go ahead and check that out. But also, if you're listening on Apple Music or Spotify, go ahead and leave a like, leave a review. 
Uh, the more you engage, the more people will see it when they go to search true crime. And so that'd be really, really awesome. Um, and I love each and every one of you. So let's get started. We are in Colorado. Um, and we are talking about Scott Lee Kimball. He was born September 21st, uh, 1966. And he was arrested and charged for the murder of four people. He was born in Boulder, Colorado to Virgil and Barb Kimball. He grew up in Old Town Lafayette, attending Lafayette Elementary and Middle Schools. Classmates did later say that he was pretty quiet and he wasn't that popular. He was 10 when his mom came out as being lesbian, which did lead his parents to divorce. Um, but his dad did end up leaving Colorado to go to Montana, and he did get remarried, which we are talking about 1976 you know, hippie freestyle was coming out. People were starting to be a little bit open-minded. So I'm glad she felt comfortable and loved to come out because even now people are having such a hard time because of how cool people really truly are. And so she's a boss-ass babe for being her true self. And we love that here on this podcast. We absolutely love when people are their true and authentic selves. Um, in 1976, Scott did get a hold of one of Virgil's guns and he ended up shooting at his home and he hit other houses. From what I read in a couple articles, it was okay. Nobody was hurt, but it did call police out to his house. Scott and his older brother, Brett, would go to their grandma's house a lot. It was definitely their safe place, but then one day it was no longer their safe place. Um... This is where we kind of get into talking about sexual assault. One of his grandma's neighbors, Theodore Payton, took advantage of the boy staying there and sexually abused both of them in his cabin that he owned. The abuse progressed from having Scott touch him and taking pictures of Scott naked to also tying him up and filming it all. The whole time this was happening, Theodore was threatening Scott, saying he would kill his dad, Virgil, if Scott ever told anyone, which as a kid, I would be absolutely petrified. Like, I would do anything in my power to not have my parents die. Um, Scott went to Centaurus High School in 1981, but dropped out after a month and moved to Montana where his dad and Brett lived. The abuse from Theodore did stop, um, but then when Scott had to come visit his mom, in Boulder on the weekends, the abuse just continued. When Scott was 23, the abuse finally stopped, but that was only because Scott shot himself in the head. The bullet, though, glanced off his skull, and um, it, he obviously did not die, but the wound was severe enough that he had to be in critical condition for several days. Family members said that once Scott was finally starting to heal, he had definitely changed, and it seemed like after the shooting, he didn't have a conscience anymore. After the shooting incident, Scott and other men that Theodore had sexually abused ended up reporting him. Theodore, thankfully, was convicted of seven counts of sexually assaulting a child and was sent to jail. Scott wrote a letter to the judge, and he begged him to sentence Theodore to jail, in the letter, he said, he has denied me my right to a normal, healthy, innocent childhood. He has damaged my life forever. Scott, in the beginning, loved to commit fraud. In Colorado, he burglarized houses. When he was 22, he was convicted of using bad checks, which was his first felony and happened in Montana. Montana also charged him with running um, an illegal hunting outfitting business. 
He did get married, but it was very brief, and then he got married again, and his partners were cheated out of using legal means to recover any of the money that was lost in this scam. Larissa did say that Scott always seemed to have an excuse and that it was never his fault. Scott even roped Larissa's dentist and her bishops at her church into the schemes. Even though they got divorced, their relationship continued a few years after, but finally ended when Larissa accused him of rape. Larissa, um, Larissa said that she was trying to make sure she got full custody of the boys, but after she failed a lie detector test, charges weren't filed. Prosecutors also thought the case was complicated because they continued to have consensual sex after the sexual assault incident, which, like, to me, irritates me because whether or not you thought that it was complicated, she was sexually assaulted, but if it was a matter of the jurors probably wouldn't see it that way and it would be less traumatic for her, I can understand that aspect. But if it was literally just because it was too complicated and you don't want to go through that, through with that, you're a piece of shit. In 2000, Scott was sent to prison in Montana for violating probation for a fraud conviction. In 2001, he ran away from the halfway house that he was staying at and stole a truck and the till from the register from the gas station he worked at for work release. Larissa said after that, Scott came back to Spokane where he broke into her new home, kidnapped her, and then raped her again. Her charged, she charged files and a warrant was issued for his arrest this time, which is great. But if they had just gone through it the first time, even if it was complicated, it probably wouldn't have happened a second time. I'm just saying. To avoid arrest, Scott went to Alaska and he posed as his brother. He even got engaged to someone else and continued to commit check fraud. He forged at least $25,000 in checks. He was arrested and convicted. He never um, was brought to trial for assaulting Larissa in Spokane because he convinced FBI agents that he would work with them as an informant. The FBI denies that Scott working for them was the reason why he was never brought to trial, and the agent who handled Scott said he didn't even know about these charges. Scott told the FBI agent that a fellow inmate named Arnold Flowers was planning to have the judge and prosecutor on his case killed. He even wanted a witness on his trial to be killed. With this, the FBI was able to have an undercover agent um, record Arnold and his girlfriend making arrangements with someone else who the FBI believed was the killer. They, arrest, they were arrested in March of 2002. Scott told the FBI he could help them with more cases. He told them about a fellow inmate who had bragged about killing a federal prosecutor in Seattle, um, also known as the Wales case. For Scott's safety, he was transferred to a low-security Inglewood Federal Prison in Littleton, Colorado. He discreetly told the FBI that he had information on planned out crimes, and this had Carl Schlaff, um, the FBI li liaison, visit Scott. Scott told Carl that Steve Enos was a convict and a friend of his, and he was trying to kill witnesses to his ecstasy distribution ring. Carl hated that he had that he was sent to work at Inglewood, and after working in organized crime, he believed Inglewood was something for an agent who didn't have much experience. But that all changed with Scott because he felt like they'd break a case and that would put him back on the career path that he wanted. Carl viewed Scott as a confident man with an answer for everything. He wasn't violent and he could still earn the trust of the jury as a witness. Now, I will say you need to keep Carl Schlaff in your brain. 
You need to remember his name. You're going to hear a lot of names, but he is one of the most important, I believe, because I have a theory about him, and I believe he was complicit in the murders as well. But that's just me. Just keep him. He pops up a lot. Keep him in your brain. In March 2003, after his first murder of Jennifer Markham, which is a foreshadow, um, at this time when he was, when he pled guilty to the Colorado and Alaska federal charges, he had already killed Jennifer Markham, but they didn't know it at the time. So he's being charged and sent away for a lesser crime than what he's already committed. They just don't know. So keep that in mind. Um, the prosecution and defense had um, the Scott records be sealed because Scott would be able to continue being an informant if they were. The FBI flew Scott to Seattle so he could have monitored conversations with the man that killed Wales. The conversation actually held no useful information. It was a bunch of baloney, in my opinion, um, because Scott did not say what the FBI had wanted him to say, so no useful info was given out at all. Um, Scott then failed the lie detector test when the FBI had asked Scott if the man confessed to the whale's killing. He also didn't seem like he even knew Scott. Federal prosecutors told Carl that they were putting the Steve Ennis case on hold, and which was that ecstasy ring case, because at this point they just could not trust Scott. One of Seattle's agents sent Carl an email about Scott's poor performance and cast doubt on his credibility. Carl then angrily told that agent that he should have called and not emailed because the email could be turned over to a criminal defense lawyer as part of a discovery, and because it was written by another FBI agent, it could undermine Scott as a witness. Legal, logical, mumble-jumbo type stuff. Um, at the next meeting with Scott, Carl didn't even bring up the email or the lie detector fail. When Carl took Scott to the airport the next month for a flight to Alaska to talk with prosecutors on Arnold Flowers' case, he noticed Scott seemed not as relaxed as he normally is, um, and Carl seemed to think that maybe Scott was hiding something. When Carl got back to the office, he checked the online file and saw a new warrant from Spokane with no specific charge. Carl decided then to end Scott's service as an informant because he was angry at Scott and the prosecutors and Steve's, Steve Enos's case, but also he was angry at the Seattle agents who doubted Scott's credibility. Carl ended up having Denver police arrest Scott when his girlfriend was picking him up from the airport after coming back from Alaska. The Spokane charge turned out to be a minor violation of his probation with reporting his address. Right after Carl told him that he was no longer an informant, Scott told Carl that he had information on the disappearance of Jennifer Markham, which he later elaborated was proof that Steve Enos had a partner who killed her and told him about it in detail. The DEA investigator wasn't sure if Scott was telling the truth, so they performed another lie detector test, and this time he passed. Since he passed, the FBI felt like he was still of use to the case, so at Scott's sentencing, they asked the judge to give the lightest sentence possible. Scott was only fined $5,000 in order to pay $8,300 in restitution to Wells Fargo in Alaska. Judge Marcia Crager sentenced him to three months in prison, which was done as time served prior to his release. He was put on probation for three years, ending his formal service as an FBI informant, but he could work for them voluntarily.
Judge Krieger, largely bound by the terms of his plea agreement and the federal sentencing guidelines, nonetheless, expressed reservations. She compared the Scots' finances, especially with payments from the FBI for his service, and if he was going to inform them on others, he told her, I'm happy to turn other people in, but I don't want to be held fully accountable for my own behavior. Since there was no rule allowing her to refuse this downward departure from the guidelines in a case where the defendant had cooperated with the government, she granted it, reducing the sentence as time served. He's getting away with so, so much. So now we're going to actually get into the murders. So following Scott's release in 2002, he moved in with with Barb and her partner. Now, Now, Barb is his mom. She's the one who um, came out when he was 10 years old. Um, Following, so, you know, he moved in with them. He began making money by flipping houses, and he also set up an organic beef distribution company. His mom and brother gave him $65,000 for the company. This did have him traveling a lot around the state to different ranches and cattle auctions so he could buy product. Larissa had also returned to Colorado, which is his ex-wife, because she still feared him and didn't want him around their sons. The FBI did also pay him for the first installment in total of $50,000 and gave him a cell phone with an earpiece for recording. The FBI paid him $50,000. First installment. Um, They paid $50,000 to a criminal. And I'm not trying to be one of those like military wives that's like, what the heck? But I can tell you right now, Bailey and I together make less than $50,000 a year. I just, it baffles me with how money just gets thrown around to people who don't deserve money being thrown to them. I'm just saying. Um, over the next two years, Scott would kill four people, or at least the four that he confessed to. Three out of the four did happen while he was an FBI informant. Two of the victims happened to be girlfriends of Inglewood inmates um, who had become friends after Scott's release. Um, His only male victim happened to be his uncle. He did also try to kill his son, but charges weren't filed because of legal complications. Sadly, the bodies of the second victim, Jennifer Markham, still have not been found. So we're going to get into his first victim. Her name is Leanne Emery. Leanne was an Idaho native who ended up growing up in Colorado when her parents moved there. When she was a teenager, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She worked as a stripper and briefly married a man who was incarcerated at the time. This led to her being involved with people who were involved with drugs and other crimes. Leanne was dating Steve Hawley, who was a fellow inmate at Inglewood. Uh, Scott reached out to Leanne towards the end of 2002, around the same time he started to meet up with uh, Jennifer and began involving her in scams that, of course, involved stealing credit card-related checks from mail just being thrown away. So you always want to rip up that stuff, people. That is my tip to you. Um, since Leanne wasn't able to confide in Steve after being, or with him being in solitary, she grew attached to Scott. She even admitted in an email to her cousin that it was dangerous, but if you don't fuck with him, he's your best friend. Which, to, if you know that... I, like, I get she may not have had any other options, but to know that is so scary. I hit, did have to take a break, um, a brief pause, if you will. If you hear purring, it's my cat. She came and laid up next to me. 
Um, I also had to go check up on Paisley. So, um, a week after that email, on January 16, 2003, Leanne went to her parents' home in Centennial and packed her car for a caving trip in Mexico. Um, going through caves, like, going caving, I think it's what it's called, was one of her many hobbies that she liked to do. Um, her, her parents thought that it was a turning point in her life, but Leanne showed her parents a photo of her as a kid where she looked just extremely uncomfortable. She explained to her parents that that's how she felt all the time. Even then, was just extremely uncomfortable, and that's so sad. Like, no one should feel that way at all. Um, Leanne then called her sister and told her that if anything happened to her, that Leanne loved her. So, as we get into it more, I do think Leanne knew she was going to die. I do believe that. It wasn't a trip to Mexico, as you might have guessed. Scott and Leanne spent that time going through four different states. On that trip, Scott stole $15,000 in checks. They used Leanne's credit card to charge the gas, and she even bought a laptop. On January tw- uh, 27th, 2003, Leanne called her parents and told them that she was staying in Mexico a little bit longer, which was a lie because she was already back in Colorado. This was the last time her family would hear from her. Leanne had been in Denver since she bought, a- bought and mailed a gift certificate to her sister there that same day. That same night, she checked into the Grand Junction um, Hotel. The clerk recognized her from the photo shown, and the clerk did say that her long blonde hair... That was pictured um, in the police picture, uh, but this time it had been cut short when she had checked into the hotel, and it was also dyed dark. She called her cousin from the Grand Junction, and they talked for two hours. She had nicknamed Scott Hannibal and said that if he learned of their conversation, he would kill her, but other than that, she was pretty safe, in quotations. She wouldn't tell her cousin where she was at, but did tell her cousin she was with corrupt police officers. Leanne then ended the call, but told her cousin to remember that she loved her, similar to what Leanne had told her sister. On January 29th, Leanne checked out of the hotel. Scott said that he went for went for a drive with her into Bryson Canyon in Utah's Buck Cliffs. Uh, when they were near the end of the road, he said Le- he asked Leanne if she wanted to go on a hike, and she said yes. They went up to um, a wash into a dead-end box cannon and then up a cliff face, which I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I don't hike. I have no idea what any of that means. I just know she went up a cliff um, and then went down, like, I would say a trail. Uh, Leanne then told Scott that his face had changed, and Scott is telling this to police later on. He told Leanne to take off her clothes and kneel on the rocks. He then shot her in the head with the handgun that Leanne had bought him a few days prior during their crime spree. The next day, her car was found abandoned in a nearby hotel, which was 40 miles from the Grand Junction Hotel. Leanne's parents didn't even know that she was missing until Steve, her boyfriend, in jail, had wrote to them two weeks later saying he was worried because he hadn't heard from her. Her parents wrote him back saying that they hadn't heard from him from her either, so that's when the, her parents started investigating. Steve told Leanne's dad about an FBI agent who had been in contact with Leanne, but when her dad called the man, he said Steve was lying. Police didn't want to investigate because Leanne was an adult who makes her own choices, but then also her background. So now, I could not find who this FBI agent was, but the only FBI agent she was in contact with was Carl, and so I do believe that it was Carl. 
her parents tracked their daughter's movements through her credit card purchases and realized she was never in Mexico. The cousin that Leah kept in contact with handed all over all their emails. These are the ones that Leanne kept repeating that if that she was fearful of Scott. Steve wouldn't give up Scott because Scott was threatening to hurt all of Leanne's family. Scott then used Leanne's credit card to get gas in California after she went missing. This gave Steve and her parents hope, but when Steve saw the receipts, he could tell that it wasn't her signature. At this point, police still didn't care what was happening. So now we're going to get into um, Jennifer Markham, who was missing at the time. Scott told Carl during an early morning that he had told Steve Enos that he would personally kill the witnesses against Steve after his release. The next step was for Steve's girlfriend, Jennifer, to introduce Scott to Steve's partner once he was out of prison. So I do want to add a note as I'm going through my notes. It gets kind of confusing. So Steve Hawley was um, Leanne's boyfriend. And then Steve Enos is Jennifer Markham's boyfriend. And Steve Enos is also the one with the ecstasy ring. So that's where it gets a little bit confusing. Um, I don't know if I said Steve Enos for uh, Leanne's boyfriend or if I did say Steve Hawley. I can't remember if I said a last name. But if I did, it's I got them mixed up. Full accountability. Steve Hawley. We'll call him Hawley from now on. He is uh, Leanne's boyfriend. Steve Enos is Jennifer Markham's boyfriend. Um. So... The next step, like I said, was for Enos's girlfriend, Jennifer Markham, to be introduced to Scott. Um, so then that way she could introduce Scott to Enos's partner once he was out of prison. The partner then would give Scott the gun to kill the witnesses. Jennifer was a 25-year-old who had dropped out of high school who was originally from Illinois. She moved to the Denver area with her son. Her career options were obviously limited with not having her high school diploma, so at the time she was dancing at a strip club and living with her um, son's father in Colorado Springs. Within two weeks from Scott's release from Inglewood, Scott did make contact with Jennifer. He told her that he owned some coffee shops in Seattle and if she wanted to, she could manage one. Carl would not let Scott have a sexual relationship with Jennifer because Carl believed that it would cause complications, especially if Scott or Jennifer needed to testify against um, each other in court or against Steve or anyone else involved. So, I do think it was a good idea that Carl had them not sleep together, but I don't think his reasons were the right ones. When Jennifer told Steve... Enos about Scott's offer, Steve told her that she should take him up on it. This would be the last time Steve and Carl would hear from Jennifer. At the dinner, which was recorded by the FBI, Jennifer did call one of the witnesses that was against Steve Enos a scumbag that deserved to die, but the conversation never went further. Scott told Carl that uh, farther into dinner, she had called him and said she was flying to New York where Enos had been involved with drug dealing and she had also worked as a stripper. He claimed she had spent $600 on a revolver and killed Steve's partner out there. After the dinner, Jennifer decided to move to Seattle. To prep for this move, she packed up all of her belongings and moved them into Scott's house. Carl later found out that Jennifer and Scott's cell phones had shown no activity. 
Carl found it weird because their phones usually had a ton of activity on them. They were always on it. Scott didn't use his phone for three days, and Jennifer never used her phone again. The Denver International Airport had video proof that Jennifer's car was left there on February 18th, and by the end of March, it was considered abandoned and towed for the unpaid fees. They sent two letters to Jennifer's address asking for payments, um, but her son's father said that they hadn't seen or heard from her since she moved out. Two months later, Carl was driving Scott to meet up with Jason Price, who was confirmed to be Steve's drug partner. Carl asked Scott if he had heard anything about Jennifer, and Scott said he had heard she was dead. Carl was surprised because he understood that being associated with drug dealers had high risks, but didn't think she'd be killed by one of them. Scott couldn't provide Carl with any more information. Carl did remember that the weekend that Jennifer went missing, he couldn't get a hold of Scott. All of her furniture was still at his house, but Scott had a lease agreement saying that he could use her furniture for a year in exchange for $400. Later that month, right after Scott's arrest at the airport when he had just gotten back from Alaska, Carl went to Scott's jail cell to tell him that the FBI no longer wanted to have him as an informant. Scott told Carl that Jason Price had told him that he killed Jennifer and had shown him a picture of her body bound and gagged. He put her in the trunk and drove to and dumped her in a creek. Scott then said that Jason asked him to go to the body and remove her breast implants because he knew those would be able to identify her. I don't know if you guys know this, but depending on what kind of breast implants they use, they have serial numbers and the serial numbers are on those breast implants and they are tracked to the doctor and the doctor's patient. Carl and Susan Helenin, the federal drug enforcement administration agent working with the Steve Ennis case, questioned Scott. Susan wasn't believing that Jason killed her because she didn't feel like he was capable. She actually told another FBI colleague that she believed Scott killed Jennifer but wasn't 100% sure what the motive was and he had passed a lie detector test on the question. Jennifer's parents, which they had divorced after she was born, became concerned when neither one of them had heard from her. They worried but also believed that because of her history, she probably just stopped talking to them. At this point, her case wasn't a huge priority for the police, but in 2004, Jennifer's parents found out that her car had been abandoned slash found the year before, and this started to raise their suspicions. Scott continued to claim that he had last seen her at the airport, but the airport had no record of her on any plane or having a ticket. Her parents paid to have a billboard with her picture and a tip hotline number on it. The billboard was right above the strip club where she worked, and there was also a $20,000 reward. In 2004, Jennifer's dad, Bob, had a friend who worked at another local police department look into the federal database for any information on Jennifer. This search alerted Carl, and he called Bob, saying that he had not she had not been seen since renting out her furniture to a man. He never told Bob who Scott was and never gave any more details. Finally, Carl gave Bob Scott's phone number and told him to ask for Joe Snitch. Bob and Jennifer's mom went to Colorado to meet Scott, and after the meetup, um, they had lunch with him. Scott's demeanor became unsettling. Scott told Bob the same story he had told Carl about how Steve had killed her, showed him pictures, and then asked him to remove her breast implants. Scott added this time that he also was asked to remove her IUD. An IUD, in case you don't know, is a woman's form of birth control. Um, he also told Bob it was where her body also told Bob where her body was the next day if he wanted. 
That night, Scott showed up at Jennifer's mom's hotel in Lakewood and told her that if she signed a contract allowing him to have sex with her, um, allowing her, allowing him to tie her up and have sex with her, I'm so sorry, um, he would show her what the killer did to her daughter. She declined because she was afraid that Scott would kill her too. This is when she and Bob knew that Scott killed Jennifer, no doubt about it. But like I said, they don't know what happened to her. And so now the third murder um, is of Casey McLeod. In January 2003, uh, Lori had met Scott at a poker table in the Lodge Casino in Blackhawk, which is north of Denver. Lori was, was impressed because Scott was out with his mom, who was scuffer- goodness, suffering from multiple sclerosis. Sclerosis? What did I just say? Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. I'm going to bed after this. I promise. Um, and she just found him very likable. When she got to know him, she gave him her phone number. Scott told her that he was an FBI agent, showing her a fake badge and a laptop with an FBI seal on it. On February 14, 2003, they started dating. And this was right before Jennifer went missing. So, he kind of, like, planned it out. Like, so, with Leanne, he was hanging out with Leanne. And then he, while hanging out with Leanne, started hanging out with Jennifer, killed Leanne, then was hanging out with Jennifer, met Casey. While he's with Casey, he kills Jennifer, and now it's just Casey. Um, But Casey is Lori's daughter, so we'll get into that in just a little bit. Uh, But Lori went along with Scott when he told her that he had to travel for his work with the FBI, and he couldn't tell her where he was going. All he would tell her was that it was for a possible murder of a girl named Jennifer. Which, if this is right before Jennifer went missing, and you're telling Lori you're going on a case for a girl named Jennifer for a possible murder, you killed her. I mean, obviously she doesn't know that because she really thinks you are an FBI agent working on this case, but as an outsider looking in, now you can kind of see like, oh, okay, well, if she wasn't dead yet, are missing he really is planning everything out in his head um Lori was really only concerned for her daughter Casey who was 19 at the time from one out of her two marriages Casey was a bit problematic her mom said she had run away from home a lot had been charged with credit card fraud and was recovering from her addiction with meth when Lori met Scott Casey seemed to be turning her life around she was clean living with Lori, making new friends, and did have a part-time job at um, Subway, which is fantastic. I love hearing stories about when people really, like, are trying to get their lives better, and then it breaks my heart when someone comes in and ruins that, I will say. So, Scott had explained to Lori that when he got arrested in June, it was just a ruse to burnish his FBI cover, Um, And Lori ended up leaving him because he wasn't in jail for long. In August, he told Lori he was going on a camping trip. When Scott was away, this is when Casey disappeared. She missed a shift at Subway, and after that, Lori was unable to reach her on her cell phone. When Lori tried to get police involved, they said as long as she didn't commit any crimes, she was totally fine to disappear as long as she wanted because she was an adult. Scott came home a few days later, and he just kept telling Lori that Casey would come home eventually. He also told Lori that he would see if any of his connections in the FBI could help. Which absolutely disgusts me 
that you could sit there and tell that mother that her child was coming back knowing damn well her child was not coming back because you killed her. It's absolutely disgusting. Uh, Scott would end up finding one of Casey's gold necklaces somewhere in her house and a makeup kit that had disappeared showed back up to, at their house. Uh, Scott would suggest that that could mean she was in the house recently. The owner of the property that rented to Scott and Lori had said they saw Casey and her boyfriend driving by. Lori would continue to look for Casey herself. She found her boyfriend and he told Lori that the last time he saw Casey, Scott was picking her up from work um, from a motel that they had been staying at. Scott also paid for that hotel the night before she missed her shift. Lori began to wonder if Scott actually knew where Casey was and wondered if he was in touch with her. Scott brought up the idea to Lori that they get married. Um, he said it would help her get over the fact that Casey disappeared and face that she lost her daughter. And he also said it may help them find her in case she was still alive. After they exchanged vows, which was at a drive through wedding chapel in Vegas, they went back to Denver and Scott's mom helped them out, helped them take out life insurance, insurance policies. Lori named Scott as the sole beneficiary. And in September of 2003, they went on their honeymoon, which was the camping trip in Kremling area, in the Kremling area. This wasn't far from where Casey's remains would be found many years later. The alleged attempted murder of Justin Kimball. Now you might be wondering, who the heck is Justin Kimball? It would be Scott's son. So, their marriage was under a lot of strain its first year. Uh, we're talking about his marriage with Lori. Scott was gone more than he had ever been, and when he was home, he was very emotionally abusive. And he focused his abuse on their older son, Justin, who had a very gentle, kind soul. Scott considered him feminine and often called Justin Susie to show his disapproval, which irritates my living being. One evening in July 2004, Scott and his sons, Justin and Cody, were in the backyard digging holes. Uh, Cody ran into Lori. I almost called him Corey. Like, I almost combined their names. Um, anyway, and he had her call 911 because Justin had possibly broken a leg. It was so much more than that. Scott carried Justin in his arms and said something about his back. Lori told the dispatcher about the possible injury, but before she could tell the dispatcher everything, Scott was taking Justin by car to the hospital. Lori told the dispatcher to not send an ambulance because she figured Scott would take her would take Justin to the hospital. Oh, he took her to the hospital, right? But he did so much more than that. I fucking hate this dude. When Lori and Cody got to the hospital, Justin was on a gurney, suffering convulsions and nausea, like super nauseous with blood all around him the nurse said that the fall had caused serious injury lori said she, uh, she he had been injured at her house but wasn't aware of how he'd fallen in any way that could have caused this the nurse explained when justin was brought in by scott scott said justin had fallen out of the car and that he had also hit his head on a metal grate so first off you're in the backyard digging how how would he hit his head on a metal grate that's that's my number one question. Okay, stay with me. Number two, how did he fall out the car? How did he fall out the car? He... Makes me sick to my actual stomach. Um, On the way to the hospital, Scott said he meant to open the car window, 
but opened the car door instead and Justin fell from the car at 60 miles per hour. Scott didn't think Justin would survive. Now, it is like 2003, almost 2004. I know that my 2005 Trailblazer I had, it had the automatic rolling down windows. So, does your car not have that? And if you meant to roll down the window, those used to be cranks, not a door handle. How did you confuse the two? And if he was, if you had buckled him in, he wouldn't have fallen out. So, what happened there? You pushed him. Okay, point blank period. I'm detective now. You pushed him. Um, the, but he just, Justin, fell from the car at 60 miles per hour. You're telling me you reached over to crank a window going 60 miles per hour? Hmm. Scott didn't think Justin would survive. Scott didn't think Justin would survive and lied, okay? And this is what irritates me. Like, how do cops not be like, you're a liar. You are a liar. When Barb, Scott's mom, found out about Justin's accident, she went to her insurance office and changed the life insurance policy on Justin from Scott to herself. She told one of her employees it was because she believed Scott tried to kill Justin for the insurance money because Scott asked her who the beneficiary was for Justin. I don't know if anyone knows how life insurance works, but if you take out a life insurance policy on someone and you pay towards that monthly, and then if they pass away, you get an X amount of money that you had agreed on. So, usually in the military, that's a thing. For Bailey, uh, I'm the beneficiary, which obviously I would share with Paisley. Obviously, I hope I never receive that money in my entire life. Um, 110%, the worst money you could ever get. Never want it. Now, if something were to happen, though, we would get some money that has been adding up. Even if we're not all the way there yet with, like, paying it monthly, we that's what we would get if he passed away. So... They, as far as I know, Scott, Lori, Justin, and Cody all had life insurance policies, but, you know, as I just read, Scott had asked, I read from my notes, I promise I'm not just reading from an article, I took notes, promise, um, Scott had asked his mom who Justin's beneficiary was, which, I mean, would make sense on why he would try to kill his son for the money, especially if he was calling him feminine and not a huge fan of his son to begin with. But still, you're a piece of shit. Just saying. After two weeks in an induced coma, Justin survived. The first thing he asked was, why did my dad do this to me? So period, point blank period, Justin knows. Justin knows his dad tried to kill him. Justin said that he remembered that Scott dropped the grate on him and then pushed him from the car. You freaking kidding me, dude? Are you freaking kidding me? Uh, the neurosurgeon said that his injuries could have been affected, uh, his injuries could have affected his memory. Law enforcement investigated, but since the two injuries occurred in two different jurisdictions, the police were unsure of who would take the lead. Charges weren't filed because of this and with the permission of Justin's mother. So I understand if Justin's mom wanted to put a brief pause on it. Because it's traumatic for her son, one, to try to be almost murdered by his dad, but then two, to relive the whole thing and heal and all that stuff. If Justin was like, I don't want to go through with it, and his mom's like, with my permission, it's not happening, I totally understand that. But the police, to not want to take 
the case because they don't know who the whose jurisdiction it would be share the damn jurisdiction what the like what absolutely not absolutely not beat someone okay so now we're gonna talk a little bit about terry kimball now terry i'm laying down i was sitting up i'm laying down now um terry is scott's uncle who came to visit from alabama with his dogs to help out with cody while justin was hospitalized Lori didn't like Terry because he drank regular, regularly and liked to walk, walked, oh my gosh, liked to, to walk around the house naked. Terry was also socially awkward. He brought almost all of his possessions and his tractor trailer with his briefcase that had all of his savings in it that he withdrew before the divorce. Um, he slept in Casey's room and began talking to Scott about going into business with him at Faith Farms, another meat business that Scott started in 2003. Back in Alabama, Terry had a wife named Karen Johnson. Uh, they had been together for 11 years and had a comfortable routine, and she didn't want him moving to Colorado and changing up their lives, which I totally understand. It's hard when you have a specific routine all the time. Uh, I also get it because when we move here soon, I will have to leave the life that I built here and it's going to be hard moving to a new place. Um, Karen remembered another time in Washington that Terry tried to go into business with Scott. It ended up in a huge argument and then Terry returned home. She expected this to happen again. Lori didn't have to, uh, didn't have to worry about Terry for long though because one day she came home from work and Scott had moved all the furniture around. He told Lori that Terry had said one of the dogs had thrown up on the couch and moved it outside. When Lori questioned the stain, Scott kind of got angry and said maybe Terry threw up on the couch and then blamed the dog, but that they didn't have to worry about him anymore because he won state money in the Ohio lottery, met a stripper, and moved to Mexico. First off, how did he win money in Ohio when he lives in Colorado but is from Alabama? He met a stripper. That's possible, you know? Um, and moved to Mexico all in one day, all in one day, and not a tad bit suspicious. But then the best part about this is Lori thought it was crazy that this would have happened because she doesn't know anyone that would find him attractive, even with all the money he had. Lori throwing mad shade. She was like, no, he's ugly. He is a disgusting human being. Who would want him? But Lori was very happy that he was gone. Soon after Karen Johnson um, filed for divorce, after not hearing from Terry, she was hoping that it would kind of cause a rise out of Terry and have him respond to her. Um, But it didn't. And around Labor Day, Karen called Scott in Lori's house and Scott told her all about how he ran off to Mexico with the stripper. The divorce papers were then sent to the Scott's home and were returned. And then in 2005, the divorce was finalized. Now, you might be wondering, if it was sent to his house, the Scott's, like, Scott's house, and then also returned back to Karen, who signed the papers if Terry's in Mexico? That's a very good question. Weeks after Terry had disappeared, Terry's, um, like, had some weird activity on his credit card, which was then obviously later traced to Scott. He had also used Terry's name to buy 21 cows. 21 cows. 
um, for almost $12,000 from a brush ranch in November. The ranch complained to the State Department of Agriculture after Scott failed to pay. Terry's bank was also found $23,000 in Fed checks that had been withdrawn in the course of four months. The bank did report it to the FBI, but of course the FBI took no action. Okay, I shouldn't say took no action. It was unknown if they took any action. But, like, if it's unknown that they took any action, they probably didn't take any action. A year after Terry disappeared, Virgil, Scott's dad, who was Terry's brother, received an email from Terry Kimball at Yahoo.com. I'm really sorry if that's actually someone's email now. Please do not email this person. Terry said that he was loving Mexico and didn't want to come back to the States. There wasn't any more contact with Terry after that. So, now, like, he's missing... They still haven't found Jennifer. Casey is, you know, has been murdered. And her mom's suspecting it's Scott. And Leanne is gone. So, we're at like 50 minutes now. So, I'm going to end it here. This will be a two-part episode. We'll go in about the apprehension of him. Uh, I will say that there is a car a car chase? Yeah, a car chase involved. Um, and then after we go into the apprehension, the next episode, we'll talk about the prosecution. We'll go into details about other crimes he might have committed, the aftermath of all of this, and then um, the 2010 state attorney general election because some of the people in the case is involved with that. And then an FBI internal investigation on why this wasn't stopped sooner. We'll talk about Kimball's time in prison. Um, And then I'll let you guys know that there is a couple episodes that you can watch about uh, Scott Lee Kimball, also known as Hannibal. Thanks to Lee Ann for giving him that nickname so no one would know who the real person was so he wouldn't kill her, even though he did because he's a terrible, terrible guy. That's all for now. Um, I'm probably going to record episode two tomorrow. I only work nine to five. Uh, so I'll probably record it tomorrow when I get home from work, depending on how Paisley's feeling. And then um, it should be posted Thursday, I would say, by Thursday morning. But that's all I have for you guys today. Don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple and Spotify. Um, don't forget to like me on Instagram at the Spooky Reptine Mom, where you can see pictures of today's episode and the episode coming out later in the week. And thanks for stopping in. Love you guys. Bye.